Welcome to Friends of George MacDonald, an ongoing podcast designed to introduce and discuss the author and his influence on the hosts and listeners in popular culture alike. Welcome to another episode of Making Friends with George MacDonald. Today, Dale, Dan, and I are joined by Mercedes, and we're going to have a great conversation about George MacDonald and what Mercedes finds enjoyable and interesting about his works. Hi. Welcome, Mercedes. Mercedes, maybe you could start by giving us a little bit of background about uh, your experience with George MacDonald, such as how long have you been reading George MacDonald? How did you first come across him? And what kept you reading? Well, hope you guys are going to edit because I feel like I have a lot to say. I guess I'll tell you how I met him. So years ago, so I'm 36. So when I was 26, 25 or 27, not a lot happened in those years, apparently. But I had just had a big bike accident and broken my back and and quit my job and decided to uh, clean houses so that I could stay mobile and honestly have time to study all the things I felt like I needed to know, answer questions I had. So I was audiobooking a lot of things. And these were things like Marcus Aurelius. You know what I mean? Like very male, obviously, because all most books whatever. You know what I'm trying to say. I feel like most philosophical works and such are written by men. And I found a lot of things to audiobook. It's kind of a lonely job. So I was spending a lot of time, you know, by myself and studying sort of the works of wise men. But one day while I was at work in someone's house with no one there, I paused whatever I was listening to. And it might, it might as well have been Marcus Aurelius. You know what I'm saying? It was very It was wisdom, but I kept thinking, this is wisdom for men. And I'm not sure how practically useful it is, not all of it, but for me right now where I'm in life and as a woman. And I thought to pray and just ask. And I said, I feel like I have an image of what a wise man would look like. And I feel like I have the human capacity to imitate, but I don't. I don't really know what a wise woman would look like. And I asked for an example of a wise woman. And I thought this is kind of odd. And then I opened up the LibriVox app. And I said, amen, and decided like, maybe I should pause and ponder or just keep listening to something. So I opened the LibriVox app and wise woman came up. And that was the first book I ever heard of George McDonald's. And the beginning is very, uh, as soon as he he's describing the landscape, I don't know if you guys can hear that in your heads right off the bat. Well, the this flower and the that flower were sucking up the light that was in the delightful drops. And I remember thinking, oh, this must be esoteric, deep. What's he describing? And like rewinding the beginning, like a couple of times. I wrote down Coleridge. I'd never read anything of Coleridge. Like, oh, because he says he was stealing the, and stealing and not well, something like that from Coleridge. And then when the story really got going, it just blew my mind. So I started looking up other things by George MacDonald. Oh, no, I went to a local bookstore and they didn't have anything. 
Um, oh no, they had the mic. They had nothing, and then I stayed and kept looking and found a Michael Phillips of Malcolm, and I'm I read. I sat on my lawn and read that book almost all day. I was so excited. I was almost like like giddy like a girl would be like what is so special about malcolm this isn't a normal guy and i called my oldest sister and was like there's a book you're actually going to want to read and it's going to make you excited about life and you're going to think about your beliefs that you think you have in a whole new way and i don't remember the next one i read but i feel like all the books i feel like i'm being paced as i read them like they're being paced with my life so that I don't get one before it's perfectly relevant to that time or that I go through a certain life experience or like a mistake or whatever it is. And then we review that <laughs> in the next book. It's like the timing has been supernatural, like amazing. But yeah, I mean, I kind of cool. wonder about your stories, but is the format of the podcast such that I have to kind of wait and listen to your answers as they come out? I wonder. Yeah, our free form. Okay. I do, I well, do. Was your accident a motorcycle or a bicycle? It was a bicycle. I flew off and hit a brick wall. That's mm. kind of profound. Yeah. I had a, then that year I had about four major concussions, like major concussions, because I kept veering to the right. And so it was a pretty raw time. And that's that's when I found him. <laughs> that's awesome. That is an awesome story. I think in that one answer, you, you answered both. How did you find him and why have you kept reading him? Do you care to say anything more about why you keep reading his works? Oh, yeah, I could go on and on and on. <laughs> sure. I mean, right off the bat, I'm trying to remember my initial responses, the things that stood out about him that were different. And one thing I noticed was that he has a way of writing that's very forthcoming with the reader. Like he's not, um, like if you could be seduced versus being courted. I think he even taught me what the difference between those two things were later in other books. But I felt like there's something obviously mysterious that he draws you on with. And that might just be my experience of being less of ignorance compared to someone wiser. But it's not only that, it's like, how do I say this? Like he's not hypnotizing you or amazing you with his, with his craft or whatever it is. And I think he's careful not to do that to you. He's careful not to, it's like he holds your hand and knows that he is leading you somewhere and that he has something to teach you. And he checks in with you on a regular basis. And when he's even when he's talking about people who really inspire him, or I feel like I'm not saying this very well. Even when he's citing his, like he cites his sources of inspiration throughout his books. He'll mention their names. He'll say what book he read, what book he didn't like. He's very parent-like in guiding you along, but he's also knows that you need a little bit of mystery. And sometimes you suspect he's, saying something, but he said it in a very polite and mellow way. And you wonder, did he just say that? And then if a few sentences later, he'll drop a little crumb for someone who might have got that, like to let you know you're on the right track without ever leaving you just that. 
even when he's going deep and he may be beyond you at different points, he checks in with you on a regular basis in a way that's I've never I've never read anything by anyone who did that. Do you know what I'm saying? Exactly sure. what you're saying. Yes. And he's he's multi- I mean, Yeah, please. He's he's multi-layered. One of the one of the complaints I hear from academic circles is that he will go off into sermons or he will go off to address the reader. And to me, that's the brilliance um, of his writing. So he is checking in with you. He is saying, you know what? If you don't understand this, that's Mm -hmm. okay. There'll be other stuff you do understand. And when the time's right, that'll be okay. Yeah. And because of those multiple layers, you you get an actual relationship with the author that you don't always when people are just presenting art. And while he does present his art or his story, he also is presenting that relationship both with himself and with father that to me is is unique yeah and i'm gonna try and quote something from donald grant where he's talking about someone's perception of donald and saying he was so far beyond their horizon that it looked kind of funny to them like he understands it about himself and i wonder if he'd ever found i mean he certainly talks about having literary friends like author dead friends from other times with him. But I wonder who was, if he had an example quite like him in that way, but it is very kind and personal. Like you were saying, very generous. And he doesn't write like someone who's lived a really solitary life and doesn't have. Yeah. There's that non-sterile quality about it that, he is a man with a wife and kids and normal acquaintances. And yeah, anyway, like you said, and it's not just when he says, this is for some of my readers. At first, when I heard him saying, some of my readers won't get this, I thought, geez, oh, might they not? And then I kept going and he doesn't always have to say that. Sometimes he does it so gently. And if he's going into a place and politely, so if he's going to deal with subject matter that is could possibly contaminate or that could upset someone or that's even indecent for Victorian conversation, he finds a way to communicate it in a way that um, kind of well, teaches you a lot about gentility. If you're like me and not very genteel, I feel like I try to be very frank and he's taught me how to gently touch things and lose that kind of shocking quality. And that's another thing I really love about him. It's speaking the truth in love and not just speaking the truth. Yeah. In love and with cunning. Yeah. You ask about his relationships and one of the key ones for him is he had a great relationship with his dad, his father, and his father had a great relationship with him down the road, if you're able to read some of the biographical stuff and the letters that they shared, it's it's a mm-hmm. remarkable thing. I never had letters like that with my dad. <laughs> you know, yeah. and it, it's it's remarkable how how straightforward they were with each other, and it was always in with love and respect. From his dad's point of view, I think it was in loving his son, and from McDonald's, it was he respected his father. That's a very that's a very keen thing for for him. That can take a man a long way, anybody a long way, is to have a father that gives them the uh, the right to be who they are. And that's what his father did with him. 
the Old Testament is full of the the old fathers uh, giving their blessing to their sons. And that's what George MacDonald's dad did with him. And there are letters to that. I'd love to read those. Wow. Well, there's a, his son wrote a, wrote a biography of his dad. And there are quite a few letters in there. I'm sure Dan knows maybe James too, where there are other just MacDonald letters. I'm not familiar with that, but there are lots of those out there. Glenn Sadler did a book called uh, An Expression of Character, which is just letters um, and correspondences and whatnot from uh, George and his family and circle, um, Mm -hmm. which is pretty amazing. Um, I also find him unique in how he portrays women. Lots of male authors uh, don't portray women um, from a woman's perspective. And I find him as a male author at least closer in his mystical characters, but also in his female characters in the Victorian novels. And maybe that's because he was surrounded by his wife and daughters and whatnot. But I would be interested in your take on that as well. So I have a take on that. So reading Malcolm and and especially introducing that book to my sister. I mean, that's what you're listening for really as a woman is what is his insight and what is his orientation to women? And now that I've read a lot of the books, first I was kind of amazed by, he's really incisive, right? When he criticizes someone or when he paints a picture of someone, right down to the physiognomy, it can be shockingly sharp. And sometimes I've read him and thought like, oh, I wonder how he would talk about me, you know, how he would explain me or my nose is it turned up in such a way you know um and at first when i heard those things i was skeptical and listening for something redeeming and as my sister and i as i had started and then my sister right after reading malcolm at first we were a little bit oh really the girl was she was just such a simple fool you know she was she read her whatever but her death was how could it have been any different And I think the next couple books I read of his were very much, you know, but how could a silly girl like that have have anything like the. So I was holding back a little, waiting for something more in his perception of women. Um, And I started making excuses for him right away because in some ways it was really insightful. But I wondered why, for example, in Malcolm, you expect it to go one way. I don't want to spoil the story right but you expect it to go one way with his i forget her name the love interest in that but by the time but anyway the idea being i thought it was going somewhere where he was the peasant who finally is going to be redeemed by being a wealthy guy and gets the girl and they'd said something he said something in that book about how the peasant girl could never have appealed to him in such a way because her life could never give her such refinements and I do remember, like, even my sister texting me at that point, like, oh, like we were hoping for a little more. But by the end of the book, I was pretty much converted and, like, making all kinds of excuses for him. I was like, no, she's like, Israel, Amy, don't you get it? It's all, <laughs> I mean, but then there was Lilith. And by the time you get to Lilith, as a woman, you're really paying attention because she says barbed because it's very close to life in many ways for a lot of living women that a lot of us know, right? And and his deference to beauty over and over again at first had 
I had some misgivings about it. But that's turned into one of the things that I think is most precious about George MacDonald now, where he's able to redeem things that like an angry society that's degenerating in many ways over time has thrown out a lot of babies with bathwater, if you will. Like even the the pleasure of beauty being one of them, among many other things that he, for me, has redeemed from the bathtub dream. Um, and a woman's beauty being one of them, that he would feel the pain of there being something very wrong about her in the beginning. How could something so beautiful be evil, be bad, not be what he was built and designed to follow and aspire to? And by the end, you see just his amazing ability to do, let justice have its full work and that it's like almost its bloom, its own beauty, its own blossom is the mercy that never, never gives up on that. His ability to hold on to beautiful things that are in, even when they're violently rebelling and being evil, like gives you hope that there could be a God that does the same thing. And in his novels, from Lilith to all of them, but particularly in the novels, I feel like he's given an example that I've never seen in the real world. I feel like I was taught certain things, even in a religion growing up, that espouses a lot of, whose scriptures say a lot of his beliefs that might be considered extreme, maybe in some other religions. But even though it was there, I remember sitting around scripture study as a kid and hearing the things they would say or their interpretations of them and holding my peace and going, just because it would be useless in a family of like eight, eight siblings, no, seven siblings, two parents, that's a lot to voice your opinions, but where you kind of cherish them and think in your head, yeah, I doubt that God's that mean, you know, or I doubt he's that stupid, or I doubt that he would have made us if. And oh, I forget where I was going with that. Good. But, <laughs> <Keep going. laughs> but oh, yeah, the, just that in his novels, oh, yeah. I think it's, it may be because whatever religion you might be a part of growing up, you were just a couple generations away, in my country at least from Calvinism or something like it. And those habits and that way of framing the world, and I'm not picking on Calvinism. I don't like personally know any Calvinists, but it's not about Calvinism. I think it's a disease that grows around belief in God, wherever there's a fear of being thrown out or being the goat that's out in the wilderness and having others throw you in a cave. There's, there's a kind of fear that then you project onto God. And once you mix it with the religions, toxic, where you're, where because you're afraid of being excluded from the love of God, you overcompensate and bear ridiculous testimony to a God that you're actually in real life would hate. And a part of you does hate. And that's probably the part of you that could be saved. And to hear somebody say that, but say it in a way that could compel, maybe in your imagination, 
someone who taught you their religion growing up, listen to him. I think like he has enough reason, enough politeness, but enough courage to ride that line where you kind of want to take him home like a gift and give him to the people. You know, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Absolutely. But yeah, it's like it, it itself is redeeming for you, for the parts of you that you've held down or pushed back the parts of you that are hiding from God rather than growing and make you sick. And I feel like it has in, it's like healing reading his books is healing and funny and vindicating and humbling at the same time. Exactly. So uh, a couple minutes ago, you said that you found yourself maybe making excuses or apologizing about some things he was saying about some women characters in Malcolm and others. In those cases, uh, at least the ones you cited, the women characters were secondary characters, and they were also, generally speaking, women of high class, which, you know, high Victorian class, which George MacDonald was often critical of. And so I think part of his treatment of them was because he was, not so much because they were women, but because they were of that class. Does that make sense? So I wonder, to the extent that's true, I wonder, have you read any of his novels where women are the primary character? Oh, yeah, it came around. It came around, for sure. Um, it's hard to explain what was... hard to explain to, to men something you would never have to say to women about the things that you would be consider a little bit abrasive or or just disheartening in someone who you thought you'd found a hero and someone who understood you the little doubts that you might have along the way when you make certain comments but it was sort of like uh, it was in the aspiring like the peasant girls could never could never offer anything like the refinements and the beauty of like he'd seen a goddess and you hard to say what rubbed you the wrong way about that it's just more sad but moving on from there, I mean, yeah, not just Lilith. I eventually read Mary Marston, right? She's a tough girl. But I'm trying to think of other women. A lot of the dialogues between people and their wives in the presence of maybe some of that was in Wingfold or Thomas Wingfold, Curate. There's so many of those conversations where there's the hero guy and he's listening to a, a couple interact, you know, a wiser, older couple. And the way they speak to each other. Um, I guess there was some of that. Yeah, just where the woman couldn't ever hope to have that. Um, the spiritual hunger, the spiritual eyes, or the comprehension. Um, but then I read other female characters. Gosh, I'm trying to think of some of them right now. Oh, I loved. There was a girl. You guys could help me with the title. There was some girl who had shoot a horse. Does this mean anything to you? She was, she, her mother was mentally ill. She had, a guy taught her to shoe a horse. She was kind of wild spirited. And her mom used to make nasty scenes in the church because she was angry and bitter. And the priest had to go talk to her and tell her to chill out. And eventually she stopped coming and the hero married her, but she was like a very vivacious, yeah, the very opposite end of the spectrum from the others, I would say. 
that's one of my favorites for someone who could hold her own and was spirited and lively, but not lively and wild like a water sprite. Who's is she half human and half wild? She's, you know, she was a little bit more embodied and human, sweet, but not demure. Gosh, I wish I could remember what book that was right now to recommend. There and back. Who are some of your favorite female characters? I, I think the one you're referring to is from There and Back. Yes, that would be There and Back. I love Lilith, be... and I'm excited that you've read Lilith. Um, a lot of people have a hard oh, yeah. time with that one uh, for some reason, but I adore that as one of his masterpieces. Um, the various wise women throughout his stories, which yeah. I... I grew up in the deep South uh, and it was very much combat boot in the sky going to stomp you. Um, so having yeah. a kind of grandmotherly representation of, of God or an emissary of God uh, was amazing. Um, have you read Vicar's daughter? That's in the marshmallow trilogy along with seaboard parish. It's a oh, it's written as though a woman had written it. Yes. I literally thought his daughter wrote that for a while. I was so lost. I found it on an app. Again, the robot's reading it to me. I'm like, what is this? And that, I mean, you want to talk about someone who's got a woman's perspective? Like, yeah, Vicar's daughter. That, yeah. There's also that, a... Oh, and it's Seaboard Parish. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, a lot of insight into women. Yeah. There's also a short story that I thought kind of spoke to what you were saying, um, and I'm blanking on the name of it at the moment, but it's a husband who feels uh, much superior to his wife, and they have, I think it's the butcher's bills, maybe? Um, mm. But he, you know, he reads the lofty things, and she, of course, could not, and she reads things he doesn't care for because they're beneath him, and um, so he takes kind of this lofty approach until it almost destroys their relationship, and he figures out that he's done a disservice to her by thinking of her in this way, which kind of, I haven't read that some, one. Some of what you're saying, I think it's the butcher's bills, but I'll have to look to make sure, but it's interesting that he saw some of that as well and addressed it in one of his stories. Um, yeah. Some, some is the Victorian model, I think where they kind of got locked into good people are beautiful, bad people are ugly. Um, and really complex people have lumps on their heads that you can tell the future from. Um, so, I mean, there's yeah, some yeah. of that Victorian stuff going on. Um, but he was also for educating women and participated in that um, when that really wasn't a thing. I, I think there's a lot of, of uniqueness there when it comes to that. He's never going to 100% be a woman's perspective, of course. But I had a friend who yeah. read uh, Back of the North Wind and had a huge, strong reaction um, against the book early in because the... North Wind called Diamond Stupid. And she was immediately. <laughs> wow, I feel like I could shock her more than the North Wind. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's, those are harsh rules. <laughs> I mean, now that you bring those up, there's a lot of women. The, the way he described the tough, the tough, there's lots of tough female side characters or, or characters who never married and, and keep their feelings on the inside and, yeah, I mean, he has so much insight. Part of what I was hoping, I guess, with that prayer and prayers I'd had at the time, the one I mentioned before, in asking for a female example, was I kind of wanted to know, is there one of these wise men? Oh, and I did ask that at some point. And George MacDonald and one other author, 
were the huge answers to that. But I asked, is there one of these wise men who wanted to know the same thing, who wanted that insight into woman and what the wisdom of, you know, like that's a big decisive factor in how much I trust that person. And I've been listening to a lot of, I hadn't had that feeling and I wanted, I wanted to know that about someone and, and then have them teach me that they had that insight. And I mean, obviously in the wise woman with the side characters with, yeah, he's, he's obviously someone who wanted to understand his mother. That might be one of the main things about George MacDonald is in, in every sense of the word, a desire to understand his mother. And I think hearing the way you mentioned his love for his father and that his father really loved him and that they were really close. The way he shares that is so comforting, I'm sure for everyone. But as as people who want to be able to approach a father or their God, and for people who don't have fathers, that he would have the insight into the fatherless to teach them from where they are was really helpful for me. And I've often wondered how he could have so much insight into people who had lived their whole lives alone, these older bachelors who had, and and the fatherless. I feel like in different novels, he's almost going down a list of the people Jesus said, don't let these people fall through the cracks. These are your responsibility. And that he would know them so well is amazing and that he could share even just by listening to his, the way he can describe fatherly love. I'd never even heard it described that way before. I'm trying to think of the first book where he mentioned it. Maybe it was Malcolm's love for who's the old guy with the pipes. I forget his name. Duncan. Duncan. But then there were so many more. And, and then he's explained in long sermons on the side that maybe if a man can't have that type of love for another man, he is not fit to love a woman and he's not ready yet. And I remember hearing that and going like I just swallowed something really foreign and wanted to take my time approaching and understanding it like a very beautiful truth that was like beyond me. And I wanted him to take me there like so genteel. Like, yeah, he said uh, in his descriptions of relationships between people, I recognize that that's something I don't understand at all. And I feel so lucky to have that glimpse into like the level of unabashed adoration between family members and lovers. Yeah. I can't think of anyone else or anything else I've read that compares to that at all. You know, his mother died when he was fairly young. And his father remarried, and I believe they had three more daughters. Was it two or three more daughters who he was very close with? And he talked to his stepmother. He called her mother. He he had the respect for her, and they had letters back and forth also during that time. So he actually uh, did not have his mother far into his life. I wondered if there was something he was kindly not saying about his mother. Do you know what I mean? I wondered if there was some, the only thing I remember reading is that I started reading George MacDonald and his wife and 
that? Was there something cold or sad about the relationship with his mother, except that she had passed away? I wasn't aware of that in reading that. Oh. That's the book I've been reading. It's George MacDonald and his wife. That's mm -hmm. written by his son, his firstborn mm -hmm. son. But he mm -hmm. had a great relationship with his wife. They shared very deeply in spiritual things and the practicality of their household and the raising of their children and all the things that happened. And in their mm -hmm. specific situation, they were separated frequently for months at a time. Sometimes he would go somewhere to teach or preach and get very, very sick and spend two months at the, somebody's house while they nursed him back to health. And they would just write their mm -hmm. letters back and forth. Mm -hmm. And those are in George MacDonald and his wife? Yeah, there's the a letters. lot of letters in that. All That's all the letters that mm -hmm. I know of, other than some that Dan and other people have posted mm -hmm. on on our Facebook page that I've mm -hmm. seen occasionally. So, yeah, those have been uh, illuminative for me, seeing some of that. Mm -hmm. I should keep going through that book. I, I asked my wife what she would like to know from you. I said, we're going to interview this young woman, and what would you like to know? And some of it we've done. One of them that she said was, what impact is his writing having on your life? That was one of the things that she said she would like to know. Some of that I think you've mentioned. Like having an, like, uh, for a little bit of faith offered up in a prayer, which has turned into many requests slash prayers over time. It's like having an angel assigned to you who actually speaks to you and that you can study and read and highlight things and keep them. And I remember one time I was reading Donald Grant and that was a really timely read. So I'll tell you. So I have a Donald Grant story. Yeah. Well, this is how I found Donald Grant. I was working late and I was listening to, I don't remember what it was. About studying different things that eventually led me to like reading about Jezebel, kind of occultish, where you're like, is it bad? Is it good? It's sort of like if you were to Google the tree of life and you can get such a range of things that maybe you should be studying, maybe people you'd never want to be in an alley with. Um, and I don't remember precisely what it was, but I'd been considering the idea of a human's potential to take control of, to take more and more control of oneself, I guess. One's body, one's autonomic nervous system, one's just, I'd been toying with the idea and wondering, it's hard to even say because it's it was at such a point where I was reading things, some of which I had a bad feeling about, some of which I thought were true and still had a bad feeling about where I was feeling overwhelmed and dismayed and it was a long day and I was working alone and I work alone a lot. So I had a lot of this was in a mood and then this huge storm started and it was nighttime. There were clouds and the clouds were like heavy, depressing, angry, turbulent clouds because that's how I felt at the time. I was driving home. I was really hungry and, and lonely and sad and, the ideas about God had gotten too vast and bigger than a father figure or anything like that. 
to the point where you start feeling your voice echoing back in the room and there's too much there and you're not sure the and it's scary i was a little scared and upset and i wanted some sort of peaceful contact and so i asked while i was driving because i'm a great driver holding my phone i said i'm going to open up youtube and scroll through whatever audio is available and i prayed first and asked touch base with me you know this is someone i trust and i know from reading what he said that he would agree when I say he wouldn't grudge me that as a channel for your love right now, right? It could be this, this man. So I scroll open George McDonald, scrolled to a book I'd never read and then just guided my finger along that bar and let it rip. And it started out describing a heavy storm and clouds and Donald was, this guy was on a roof trying to make his way back to his room. Yep. But he couldn't because of the wild storm, and he finally had to get on his knees. He had to be on his hands and knees, which I'd just done, right? So that he could get find his room again. And as he went in, he bumps into that creepy Uncle Marquis figure who's sort of quasi-somnambulant, maybe on drugs, which was also a big thing I was pondering at the time. <laughs> the influence of drugs and someone had uh, anyway i'll skip that very interesting story but i had recently been drugged and that's relevant to donald Graham, oh. and not with any drug that i can account for and the experience was probably closer to donald's explanation of it than arcturus if you remember they that happens in that book and he very gently alludes to that too but i wasn't there yet so i don't know the book so far, we're in the same weather. We've both gotten on our knees. He's made his way to his room. And then that freaky marquee is sort of rambling, maybe his own poetry, maybe someone else's. And it was exactly the spirit and the thought of the things I'd been considering. And it ended with something like, I will be my own master and rule my own names. Like being a god to oneself. And there's a lot of close to that doctrines and ideas and even things and things that great men allude to a lot about the divinity within us or the divinity of our nature or our ultimate destiny. But there was something slightly different and I was feeling for the differentiation. And then here was this poem of this worm, a worm having a dialogue with a man that ended with this, I will be my own master and rule my own names. And the names were his own, like, Anyway, so I decided I would read this book, and the next day I started it, and as I went, the beginning of it is Donald venturing out on faith, having left broken love behind him. And in the words, it was so beautiful. And as that whole book unfolded day by day, it was matching my daily experiences to, to guide me through thoughts I'd been having, until finally, I remember one night, oh no, that same, that same stormy night, I don't know if I listened far or if I skipped ahead, but it went to some, probably one of my favorite parts of any book, where um, Donald's on the roof with Artura. He's taken her to the roof and Davy's there because Davy always minds what I say. So he's allowed to go high up with me, to be high, as it were, to ascend with him. 
And Arctura, who she is, and she has her reservations and her spiritual pain and questions. And he starts talking to Davy. What does he say? Davy, oh, so I told you I'd been studying things that were kind of scary to me and making me feel a little bit lonely and overwhelmed and at a disadvantage in the world, especially as a woman. And he has this conversation with the kid. And he says, Davey, if I were to show you a proposition of Euclid and you didn't understand it, but I told you you had to love it, would that be fair? And he says, Dave, no, no, you would never do that. Why? And Davey says, well, obviously. And he explains why that wouldn't be fair. And then it's after they back and forth a little, he did neither obviously would God expect that of you to love everything about him that you couldn't understand or just because you were taught a new thing, it might be very hard for you to love. And then as Davy gives his childlike answers, um, Donald answers and says, it sounds as if you trusted me, Davy." And I just burst into tears. Like, like somehow on my own, I was unable to conceive of such a beautiful, capable, reasonable God right. who could, who, yeah, and, and this man was like a gift. And some part of my head was even thinking, are you allowed to use a, a person as a medium for this kind of love for God? And sure enough, he explains that in Donald Grant. And then one night as I was sitting there reading, I was thinking, you need to get out more. You should get a job where there are other people around. You're imagining is <laughs> your friend and that he's having a dialogue with you and you're getting carried away. And then the next thing I read, he was saying, you know, maybe a specter could appear to someone and blow their minds and tell them this and that. But then it would still be a ghost. You wouldn't be sure if it was a divine messenger or a trickster. Then it would leave you a little bit rattled. But when somebody, sh but when an author shares their soul with you and explains the innermost workings of their mind, it's more intimate than if they were to appear to you. And I was just like, this. And the whole book was like that, just unfolding in real time. It was amazing. Amazing. Like he, I think some of us learn things and we forget the way we learned them about God or anything else. And then when you go to tell someone else, all you might have is that golden nugget, that distilled couple of sentences, and you forget how you got there. And that's one of the special things about George MacDonald, too, is he knows he remembers and he goes back to that exact place. And often there are things that aren't, aren't articulated by anyone else. There are things, there's a whole realm of things that we don't quite say for fear that he has the authority to say. I don't know how he got it, but yeah. Not yeah, just he the, remembers. Not just the authority, but at least for me, the clarity. Like one of the things I really appreciate reading mm -hmm. George McDonald's works is that he distills for me wisdom that i get i have in me from my life experiences but i haven't really ever distilled myself if that makes sense like he he helps me in that distillation process so i i can relate to things that happen in the in the books to to the things he says and i because of the experiences i've had but he just distills it down into a way that teaches me something new or, or helps me understand what it is that i have in me already can I ask you, um, when he does that, 
do you feel like you then, is there something you then understand about why you hadn't distilled it? And could you articulate why? Sure. Um, I think on another episode, I expressed that I feel like I lack imagination to figure things out, how to apply things. But, um, I mean, I have, I have distilled some of my wisdom, I think, from lessons I've learned. But I guess I don't always have the time or the opportunity to reflect on everything that I've experienced and, and figure out what to learn from it. I should do better about that. But George McDonald's great because he gives me a nice short circuit of helping me distill those bits that I haven't processed, whether it's due to time or my lack of imagination. I'll just say George is more insightful than I am, that's for sure. Or at least he found a way to, to distill wisdom into nice nuggets, sometimes one-liners, sometimes three-paragraphers, but um, nice nuggets that just ring so true and help me see things, see truth that I can recognize because I've had enough life experience that I can recognize it. Yeah. Hmm. I've thought for a long yeah. time that in McDonald's writing, he's aware of and defining how all things are working together for good, that God is calling, causing all things to work together for good, whether you see it or not. And there are all these ancillary questions and individuals and circumstances where some people don't see it and some people do. It's like you're talking about Dar Donald Grant and Davey being this child who trusts Donald and obeys him. And Donald knows that. And then Artura doesn't believe him and trusts him because of what she has heard until she starts to realize that in her being, when he speaks, she wants that to be true. But she doesn't know if it's true yet. And she's afraid to think it's true because of what she has the baggage that she has in her background of, of how things are. And Donald's answers to her are always that God, God is love. <laughs> God is always love. He's, he's not, he's not that sinister being that you're hearing about. Uh, that is, it's still hard for me to accept that reading it. Like I have to read him on a regular basis to get that feeling back. Like, I don't have it on my, I mean, I think I did as a kid, but it's amazing how much can creep in to accuse so many ideas That's right. and how much we all cling to whatever, whatever your canon is. I felt like there were people I couldn't possibly suggest him to until, so after, eventually I heard how much C.S. Lewis liked him, obviously, you hear about that. And I felt like that's how I had to introduce it. Like, Narnia, you read us Narnia, right? Therefore, I think you might like this, this gentleman named George MacDonald. And here's some passages I underline. No, I didn't go that far. But um, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, there's people who are put off by Victorian and you can't do much about that. But it's interesting what will get by people's radar after you say C.S. Lewis liked him that would have really upset them before that. So about that, I wonder, maybe I shouldn't go here. 
maybe none of us are interested in talking about it, but I feel like I hear a lot of, is universal, is that a religion or something? I hear a lot about it when it's you, a, is that a, it's a, it's a couple different things. There, there is an organized uh, sect of universalism, um, uh, which has little to do with George's view on universalism. Mm -hmm. um, but it often gets muddied up when people are um, looking to mm -hmm. throw George out. Um, uh, it is certainly one of the hot topics. I've been involved in George McDonald discussions for a long time, um, and that one comes around uh, regularly. Um, George... I'm surprised by how often I hear about it. It seems like he's pretty explicit about what he believes in his own words. His is is uh, God drawing everything back to himself, everything being healed and whole. Um, yeah. And a lot of people have a very tough time with that. Um, some people look at it as like a free pass. So you can do whatever you want. doesn't matter. Uh, which certainly wasn't what he was presenting. Um, but it gets muddied in these other universalism thoughts and sex and things. So it is an organizational thing out there somewhere, huh? That makes me think, what you just said makes me think of some some quote from one of his books where he said, of all God's resources, time's the cheapest. Like, <laughs> there's plenty of worlds and times for things to work themselves out. And that's such a generous, pretty way of looking at it compared to the way some of us were taught about it. That's not at all the way we think about time, is it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is a very secure thing to say. Uh, I can't remember. It might have been the Michael Phillips version of the Donald Grant book that he said about Gibby. Have you read Gibby yet? Yeah. Okay. He said about Gibby that Gibby had learned to live in the eternal present. If I can, I have that quote pretty handy. It's um, speaking of Gibby, he says that Gibby is among the few at any moment on the earth who do not look before and after and pine for what is not, but live in the holy carelessness of the eternal now. And that's one you talked about having your socks knocked off. I don't know. That was probably 40 years ago that I read that. And it's really stuck with me, the concept of living in the eternal present. And things that, that use predetermined terms to try to buttonhole somebody. Universalism is one of those big ones. I, did McDonald ever use that term himself, of himself? No. See, I don't think so. And so what I see with that is people are trying to term that has a certain shape that a certain size button goes in and they want somebody to be living on that button so that they can understand where that is it, it's one of the ways that people try to find each other by quantitative and qualitating them in how they first introduce themselves they want to know something about how much better they are how much smarter they are how much more wealthy they are and it's all this quantitative stuff that has nothing to do with the spirit of God in us and the spirit of God working in the world. And I don't think it worked that much in McDonald. I don't think he was captured with those things particularly. And when he was, and he has characters that are captured in the tyranny of their immediacy of this thing or that thing, right? 
And then mm-hmm. there's another character comes along, like in Wingfold, Polworth comes along. And Polworth has this viewpoint that is not in this tyrannical sense of thinking that Wingfold is experiencing, let alone the woman whose brother has killed someone or her aunt who is stuck in this religious thing of being the dean, the wife of the dean of the church. All those things are very, very narrow. And George Bascom is this very narrow character that has this viewpoint that everything is okay as long as he thinks it's okay and as long as he says it's okay. But the other stuff is all rubbish. Certainly, you don't, he tells Wingfold, certainly you don't believe any of this rubbish. (laughs) And Wingfold doesn't at the time. He doesn't know what he's doing. I like that George always qualifies his thoughts too with, if I'm wrong about this, then it will be something better. It'll right. Be or yes. you don't understand, or we don't understand it yet. Yes. Yeah. That knocking your socks off things that he said, I guess for me, oh, it's very close to what Dan just said, but the, um, the idea being a, that you're justified in counting on God being better than you could possibly imagine. <laughs> and, oh, I think he says, he says something to Arturo like that too. Um, where, oh, or maybe he just, maybe the author himself said it about Arctura, but that maybe God had some, maybe God had something even better than she could imagine in store. Like, and you go, well, yeah, of course. Like, what was, what was I tied up in knots about? And that is another of my favorite things about George MacDonald is, I think it's from things he said in the beginning of Lilith. I don't know where he said it. You're free to think. I'm free to think. And that might sound pretty straightforward, but that was the knock my socks off. Like, yeah, go ahead. Imagine as great as you can imagine. And it's okay if it isn't. I was even raised reading words off the page that said that God could reveal all kinds of things and would continue to reveal more things. But it wasn't in the it wasn't in the spirit of, of how things were done. And to hear him say that and then share these expansive thoughts that the kind that you privately have and can't speak out loud was, yeah, you are free to think. It's okay. It's not heretical to imagine that God could love that much. Referring to Donald Grant, the quote there is if you find what I tell you untrue, it will only be that it is not grand and free and bounteous enough. To think anything too good to be true is to deny God. It's to say the untrue may be better than the true, that there might be a greater God than he. Um, I remember one time asking my mom, in middle of a discussion that wasn't, I had thought might we would have more agreement on than we did, but saying, so do you think God loves, I said, does God love Lucifer? And there, I mean, there's like two instincts you can see going on at the same time, like smack. And oh, wait a minute, God does love it. Uh, it was like the, the, the system just, fried and there was there could be no response and 
you almost want to punish the, I mean, I could feel her thoughts because they're, she's not the originator of these thoughts. It's a heaviness to all culture. It's not specific to any religion that comes from that fear of needing someone to punish and needing someone to cast out. Um, but that also leaves you cast out. That's the problem. But, oh, and then I, when I just started reading Robert Faulkner, he said straight up that he that he didn't think but felt sympathy with Lucifer when he first heard the story of him being cast out and thought that maybe God had a, a bit of an extreme response, Robert, not George MacDonald. And then he went on to say that he had some sort of sympathy. It wasn't sympathy for the devil. That's the Rolling Stones song. But anyway, sympathy for Satan. And I thought that was, again, timed nicely. I'm glad I was allowed to come to that point in real life before my tutor came and like followed up on it. <laughs> yeah. You have permission to be. That's one of the key things with McDonald. I think also he wants to give people permission to be beyond where they are right now and to aspire for the highest. Have you read any of the unspoken sermons yet? Oh yeah. Like okay. several okay. times. Okay. Yeah. And I forget I forget most of them before I read it the next time. So it's just as amazing every time. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's a lot of that in those to him, for him, in them, is you have permission to be. It's what his dad gave him. You have permission to be my son and to thrive in life. And it's honesty. It's, it's allowing people to be honest about their faith, about their doubts about wherever they happen to be at that particular moment, and then we can help each other and grow from there. Fabulous. Yeah. yeah. Like he dignifies that moment with the presence of, with his own presence in my case, but I guess the presence of God. Mm -hmm. Like if God could be at whatever point you're at in you, that's a beautiful place to be. I feel like he said that in many different ways, that yeah. just to be a thought in the mind of God. And I remember when I first heard that too, just to know that your tiny little parentheses and a thought from God is the most glorious thing. And that took me a minute to chew on too. I can't say I fully achieved that type of maturity, but I admire it. Yeah. Yeah. There's nothing that's um, hidden that will remain hidden. Everything will be revealed. That's another thing that I think McDonald addresses frequently. And if it's going to be revealed, why keep hiding it? Why be afraid of something that has, there's no purpose in fear? Yeah, that's another, um, that is another thing that I kind of was introduced to by him is there can be the hero and you can be the hero wherever you're at in Fantasties and all these worlds and all of the possible scrapes your knight could have gotten himself into that it's the Mr. Upward. Is he Mr. Upward in Fantasties or am I mixing all my books? Anadose probably means Mr. Upward. I think it does. Anyway, that which goes on and moves up. As I was, like, as I was reading Fantasties, at some point I started thinking, like, could this be Christ? You know what I mean? And I think in a way, and maybe, and I don't know the limit to the way that this could be true, but maybe there isn't one. It is that element that continues to deal with what's in front of him and 
and move upward and and do the best with what information he has. Similar with Lilith, there's he has the feedback from Raven, but for the most part, he does what he thinks is right in each situation. He has limited information, limited knowledge, but eventually those small decisions based on limited information bring him to quite a, a height, right? And I think before that, I had struggled with assuming that what was Christ was um, what Alan Watts would call a divine encyclopedia Britannica, one who knows everything and is and is constantly dealing with um, making decisions. Is it even a decision by the time you know everything? But that rather a human being who was divine would be an ethic more than a quantity, if that makes sense, more than a quantity of perfection or knowledge or information that it would be a behavior that inevitably tends towards uh, all truth, like permission, a license, oneness with all truth. And that you can achieve that like Gibby in the divine present of doing your duty. Another huge thing that I'd never really thought about until George McDonald, this concept of being obedient, it always had a negative sound to it. Sometimes it still does, this idea of doing what you're told. But the way he explained it was so, he explained it as someone who sounds like he has done what he's told and I want to have what he has. And that he gives the instructions to, I guess I'll I'll try to reference where he's, he must say it a million different ways, but that the best thing you can do at any moment is anything that, God said to do. Start wherever you can think of one thing and just do it. Yeah. And I don't know why I'd never had that conveyed to me in such clear terms. Do, do you do relate to this? You. Absolutely. Do yeah. the work yeah. in front of you. Yeah. He, can, he conveys that same idea again and again in pretty much every one of his works. He's always on about obedience. And it being the key to building that perfect character that you were talking about a minute ago. Yeah. Yeah, very empowering. And some of that has so to do with, with trust, I think. We get we get hung up on obedience because we've been obedient to people that we don't trust in school, in some people in the military, different places like that. Um, so he's kind of flipping that dynamic to here is the most trustworthy being who you can trust and be obedient to, and it will be for your best. And and the scope of what he says is bigger than your measurements before. So before you trusted people who are not trustworthy and whose examples are not trustworthy, and you've done things that have been kind of fruitless in your own development in some ways, or just taken on the appearance of doing things. And when he, gosh, I'm trying to remember the last thing you said that made me think this, keep going on a tangent. Oh, trust. What, what he does too is embolden you against any of the results or repercussions or what anyone else might say or do. He gives you that personal channel to the satisfaction of loving your father so much that it would be an honor to take on whatever comes as a result of being obedient, not just stoically because you're on board with a bunch of other people who might be on a ship of fools, but because it's a beautiful act of love, which 
And that's another thing that he restored for me at a time that it's not popular is doing things just for the beauty of love. Like I feel like whatever was Cal, whatever he talks about Calvinism and things like it, or the doctrine of that he criticizes constantly and says it's of the devil has just mutated in our time and it's everywhere. And like pop psychology, you can get online and learn any question you have about relationships or interacting with others. You can find an article about how you, who you should denounce, who's unsavable, who you should cut out of your life right now, why you should put yourself first, that other people can smell if you put yourself first. And if you don't, you're just going to be cast by the wayside because cool people stick with cool people and you want to keep your energy pure and peppy and shallow and self-seeking. And there are things about it that sound true at times, and but it kind of staps a lot of joy and clarity and hope and enthusiasm about life away as you're learning all these red flags for your fellow man and how quickly you should dole them out to show your value. Like that's the most important thing you could display. And it is, it's like, it's like gasping in air, hearing the way George McDonald talks about what is and isn't important and restoring the nobility of love and be it requited or not that it's that it's a that it's a duty you have and an ethic and a pleasure and it's the commonality that you can have with god that will give meaning and beauty to your life and that's completely gone from my culture i'm not i don't have a lot of roots that i know and I'm single and I'm 36 and I don't meet anyone who could, if you were to say some of these things, they would, it sounds weak, weak and like maybe a bit of a red flag, you know, that you would aspire to unconditional love and service and not, not following ambition for wealth or fame. I don't even Sometimes it's hard to find people you can even communicate with because they're almost sensing you like, is is she tough enough? Like, does she have what it takes to ruthlessly go on with life and throw people to the side and get rich with me? Or is she just unambitious? And then you hear someone like Donald, who's, I keep coming back to him because I really like Donald. But and what he says about if not having any ambition. If I were ambitious, I completely understand that. And I like that about it. Yeah. I've noticed yeah. that in, in the way uh, in modern culture, I work with young people, how people reference themselves in the last swath of years. Everyone is a king and a queen. Everyone. Oh, yeah. All Be the a time. queen. Yes. <laughs> so it it is kind of diametrically opposed to service and love to other people um and it's kind of weird to watch it play out because while i see hear the label used a lot um i don't see them feeling that a lot i don't see them feeling um truly empowered oh. truly valued um the label has kind of taken the place of actual value in some instances yeah it's put on a haughty affect of a queen almost like um there's so much stuff like that online. All the advice is 
to just act as though you had this inherent, it's not, not values, but just value, just superiority. There's something that deserves instantly. Yeah. It makes no sense. And it does leave people really empty. I was talking to um, kind of a disturbed, disturbed team, I would say. And she was saying how she shouldn't have to put up with, Oh, I think I was telling her, you know, she had some problems with her mom and her parents were split up. And I was telling her, I didn't really know what to tell her, but I said, I don't know what to say, but I would tell you that like, whatever she is, that's going to be, it will always be your mother. That will have been your mother. So whatever you can do to glean what good you can from it, you're going to have a concept of mother and it's going to stay with you in your psyche your whole life. So try and find a story or a way of purifying it so that it is mothering you because just get resourceful or something like that. I thought it was really pragmatic advice. And her response was, I shouldn't have to do that. I just thought, whoa, like what? And she must, and I tried again. And then she said, no, like she had read somewhere online. Like I shouldn't have to do that. Like word but you do have to do that okay like i don't know i don't know how to explain this uh there are going to be things in life like but and she went on to explain and she had like a life coach talking to her uh, who's a friend of hers and all these life coaches from this pyramid scam of like life coaches making life coaches making life coaches without ever having achieved anything in life except how to like somehow blow on this nasty flame of like selfish entitled but like misery and it's people who are looking that they're coming and teaching this to and george mcdonald is somehow so truly empowering after eating all this empty calories of nothing he says something and you go well it sounds like something jesus would say i think he did say that but when you say it it makes sense and then you've given me all these lived examples and it is their fearlessness of the consequence of the sacrifices they make for love that makes them so incredibly respectable and powerful beyond any of the influences of this world. Why it is the way that leads to destruction. It's an easy, it's an easy place to be. That's the thing. It's very wide and broad and you're allowed to be what you want to be and do what you want to do in that place. And it's, uh, Truth and time go hand in hand. McDonald teaches that frequently. That truth is always going to be because God created all things and all things are working together for good, whether we see it or not. And so your place, our place, is to do the next right thing that is before us, set before us. And it's, it's always going to be done out of love. That starts with love the Lord your God with everything and love your neighbor. Okay. That reminds me of something I wanted to remember to say I love about him that, and that he taught me was about love. I feel like sometimes when thinking of love or courtship, it's hard to think of Christ in the way that you may have learned about him in church. I mean, he, anyone can see why and joke about that. And George McDonald jokes about it all the time, like how boring or how un whatever different church experiences might be. But even church aside, my own self, sometimes it's been hard for me to think of like any type of courtship 
and bringing your testimony of Christ into that situation, right? Or or your love of God. I mean, I can understand how to privately feel the love of God, but I guess somewhere in like the modern and maybe not just the modern, according to George McDonald, courtship process, there's this weird sense that I think makes everyone uncomfortable about dating. You're pro- you're all married with families, but like humor me. So I might be the only single George McDonald fan in the world. So <laughs> nope. you're never alone. But so there's this weird feeling that if, if you want to meet other people and you want to date, that what you're going to do is go act a role. A guy's going to act a certain role out. He's going to act like a smitten knight. Best case scenario. That's if you're a queen, <laughs> you know, he's going to treat you like a queen. And you have your little checklist of like, not so knightly anymore things that he does. And like, hopefully some things he doesn't do. And he plays the man in love before there was ever a chance for him to fall in love. And he feels this pressure to act like somebody who's really smitten by someone. And you act like, ooh, gee, this might be working on me until something happens. It's like we can't keep up this pretense anymore. We can no longer pretend. And then you date someone else and you start acting as though you're in love prematurely until and see if it takes or not. And there's something really dishonest and unorganic about that. And he's that he explained that might be in Donald Grant too. Yeah, that was Donald Grant. That's where it first started really sinking into my head where Donald always talks about how he holds back. He never had an agenda, obviously with Artura. He had an ethic and he had rules for how he would behave and and they were parts of himself that had been divinely guided and nurtured, and he was growing into quite an amazing person. But he was never seeking anything, and he always referred back to. He was just letting God. He just and he would say that he was letting God guide his life. And if God wanted that to happen, it could and would. If the time was right and with whomever, it would be right with. And that hadn't. I think in our faithlessness, there's this sense that you really have to manhandle and guide the outcomes of relationships and as though there was a script you would have to go through. And reading his novels and seeing how love unfolds, it's the very opposite of some ridiculous wooing process. And his love stories are amazing because it does unfold within that scary eyesight of God. And it becomes less frightening and you see like, wow, a God who could create the universe and do all these things and teach these incredible lessons that George MacDonald can actually make understandable would want you to have love. And you could do something within the permission of that God if you weren't trying to um, carefully craft it. And in Donald Grant, George MacDonald gives this juxtaposed two men. There's Donald who's letting God guide his life and minute by minute and then there's that creepy guy who wants to marry artura to inherit the house and he talks and he force you oh man yes (laughs) yes 
and and how he'd gone off to England and he'd learned certain skills and and he and George McDonald doesn't really expound the skills like they're not worth the typing <laughs> they're not worth the scribbling it would take to list out this that's right um, the hypnotic ability you can have over matter and women by the way because they're all in the same category right and the way you can spin her and, and enslave her mind and just he doesn't even go into it but we do know in our culture like it's it's worshipped like the ultimate religion for guys to learn these tricks and how to and obviously that was the thing back then too i didn't realize that until i read george mcdonald they're the same rules and it's the same almost like an alternate priesthood that and i feel like that's a lot of what donald grant was about is this alternate priesthood that chains the woman to the bedside and sacrifices it's hope for the future, it's children, for the sake of this control. And the idea of a lover who frees you, sets you free from that type of control, such that you would want to ask him to marry you. Was I mean, I, I cried reading Donald Grant. Like, I wanted George MacDonald to marry me. I mean, I got to the, but it must have been foreshadowing that I was just really getting into. But like before he proposes, I was like, they're away in a world. I mean, you had a family, you had a wife. I don't mind. And then Artur is saying the same words later. Like, and I went, I, I get it. Or you're very good at foreshadowing. But that there is a part of a woman that isn't just the cultural coy, constantly rejecting to heat up the desire of the other and vice versa, this kind of dark altar counter to love that really does turn the wheels of a lot of how our culture works, not just romantically. This idea of captivating one's own, even your own faculties, even your own body and hypnotizing yourself into getting a shock wrist that's going to zap you every time you do such a thing and having a vision board that, you know, all these things that are popular right now where you put your, how much money you want to make and you look at it every day and all these ways of, of trying to compel a certain result from something that really could open up to you and adoring love that trust just blew me away. And I was so grateful for someone carefully pointing out all the differences like he did for Arctura throughout the book, peeling yeah. away the distrust and the, the sense that God wanted her to blindly comply with certain things or put up with certain things. And, and that her acceptability before God would be, was she able to cope with the resulting misery? The difference between that, real love and possession or ownership. And that, and that God might want her not to settle for the former mm -hmm. hadn't occurred to me. I don't know how it hadn't occurred to me. I just thought there was something inherent in this life where you were supposed to suffer through a certain type of disbelief and all those other things. I mean, Horsky or whatever stupid name was. Yeah. <laughs> Other names were coming to mind. I don't know why. <laughs> but yeah, that, that God would, um, when he's talking about her house on the roof, her household, what's her duty to do with her, this inheritance that she's coming on? Like, 
and she, which has many, many, many layers of truth, right? What is her duty in regard to her household? And she's saying like, do I have to just do what women do? Or is there something better? And in this fantasy story, there was something better, but but he like gently lets this idea dawn on her that like maybe her duty is to keep the house clean and and usable for God for whatever his purposes should be. And for some reason, I just, that I was a very kind and generous and bold thought that had not made its way into my mind and that I was choking on. That's very relieved to have taken away. To your wife's question. Right. That was a big one. Yeah. Well, that's a good one. And that'll be an ongoing one for you, I think. I've had conversations with other sort of young women who are single and very upright in their faith who have the desire to be married. You know, it's not something that's that unusual. I remember that happening to me when I was working on multiple degrees in college and saying to a friend of mine who was older than me, I said to him one time, and it was hard for me to say it. I said, you know, I feel like I have this desire to be married. And he said, well, it's about time. That was his comment to me. And I didn't know where that would go. I didn't. And then where I was, what would go? Huh? Where my where desire, where that desire would go. Oh. I didn't know what would happen. My wife and I just celebrated our 45th wedding anniversary recently. So there, there it went, you know, and now it's in the past. But in that process, the angst of, of this, like you're saying, the different things that go through your mind and, and your heart, uh, it's, it's, um, it's, it's an interesting time. And the ongoing question is, is God faithful? And the answer is yes, unequivocally yes. And that delighting in the Lord, he says, he will give you the desires of your heart, the desire of your heart. And mostly that desire is to be righteous and to be just. Read Psalm 37. That's what it says. That's what that desire is. But it's also the desire. I think it's also other desires that we have. So it's quite a challenge. Yeah, the last thing that she was asked me to wonder about is on in the way that God works, how, how is McDonald helping you to see how God works and how God is teaching you anew, teaching you new things? And you're, you've talked about that a lot. She'll, she'll like hearing all of this. <laughs> well, can I say one more thing I love about him then? Sure. <laughs> that he's not God, of course, George McDonald. <laughs> uh, and no lightning struck me. And I trusted that because of what I've learned from George McDonald. <laughs> but um, one of the things I've learned from him about how God works is I feel like a lot of his stories are kind of popular tropes in literature, but they're the true story, like the true version. Sort of like if you have Oedipus and human sacrifice and and popular stories of history or, or even like his interpretation of Hamlet or his translation of Hamlet that he shared as opposed to the real Hamlet. Oftentimes he's going into a myth that we're perpetuating as a culture and bringing back a falsehood over and over again. And then he shows you, he'll give you the same story, but it doesn't end the same way that culture usually takes it. Like, 
just like his heroes who fall in love with rich girls don't get rich and move into a castle and vice versa. They don't meet the wealthy person, do the right deed, and then someone pats them on the head and gives them all the treasure. And in the end, we learned that treasure really is as desirable as we always thought it was and close the book like, wouldn't it be nice? I feel like he corrects them, our false mythologies with his stories. For example... Oh, and because of that, you hear this, the true stories that are normally sacrificed. And I think that's part of why you can learn from him things that you haven't learned elsewhere is that they're on that dark underside of things that have been cast out, truth that's been cast out, scapegoats of stories that have been ignored. But his take on the story is the scape, the normal scapegoat of the story who's, that we don't hear their version, he tells and he tells it brutally honestly so for example nobody's going to write a book about a mute poor guy i mean he gibby did inherit something but still it's not a that wasn't the typical story no one's going to tell donald's story who knows donald um and he's had kind of a weird personality that most people don't value what he values so kind of like that woman in the neighbor, the neighboring house from where Donald was staying, she sees, wow, there's some kind of man here, but like, I have no business with him. Like there, there's nowhere for it to go. There's nothing that can develop there. And that's why we never hear those stories. No one is writing it. And in the end, what was there to show for it? Well, he died alone. Ta-da. That's, it lacks all the things that draw people to it normally. And that is one of the special things that he's done that has taught me about God's love is when you normally hear it championed in normal stories, there's a lot of status that has to be achieved or, you know, a, a castle and a happy ending or, you know, Artura dies and she dies pretty much single. And these aren't things that people would normally appreciate. And if it weren't for the love with which he paints them, you would never, ever hear their stories. And because he has such detailed and fleshed out paintings of these people, because of the love that you see him give them, you feel entitled. Um, entitled might not be the best word, but it is sort of an accurate word to that love yourself. And, and to courageously not pursuing a path that your heart doesn't really push you towards, but is sort of the path and you're not quite sure why it gives you the courage of, of your deepest convictions and the gratitude for the uniqueness of your own life and the people who might come within your circle, that it's okay to feel that they were precious. It's okay to have loved someone who didn't seem lovable or didn't seem important and maybe had a really tragic end. And that you never have to fear that God was like, come on, girl, you were supposed to, we were on track for something and you got, what was that? What was this? No one will ever know who that was. This isn't going to fit into your life story arc where things are supposed to be going. It sort of made sacred again and gave me hope for more sacred encounters with real people who have real inestimable value, regardless of how the story seems to be repeating itself in a 
here in a trap in time. And okay, I just I'm just gushing things I love That's about him, and this could go on forever. But one more of those things is um, I think I learned from Princess and the Goblin is dignity. You know how he dignifies his little people characters, and there's a point at which they hold their ground and begin to tell the servants of the house what is what. And all right, Lutie, you've been talking down to her for a while, or Lutie'd been talking down to her, and and the dignity of the truth. Like for for whatever reason, I think of many times the way he described the princess and Curdie, right? The way he described her dismay at not being believed and her saying that it was rude of him not to believe her. I was like, rude of someone not to believe you? I thought that was just the way we treat each other to keep everyone in their place. Like, I didn't know that you were allowed that. For some reason, that idea stuck with me. And I think about it all the time, that it, it's rude to, to have not believed in her grandmother's string and that she'd give him time, but that but she wouldn't be moved by that into some doubting of the string or like have to pretend not to know there was a string or that it was guiding somewhere out of politeness to him, that it was okay that there would be this painful waiting area where he wished she would be believed, but she wouldn't come down from that higher ground of what she knew. And that was new to me too and empowering that to have that, his idea of a princess and this queen that you read about online that you're supposed to be, to be desirable to someone who wants to be punished for the rest of his life are very different. And yeah, his idea of a lady and all of these things being an innate dignity rather than a obviously superior entitlement. And I appreciate that dignity. I, he gives it to his men too, or his men just inherently have it. They just walk around doing insanely dignified, unusual things that everyone respects them for. And it's like healthy for me to hear. It's like robust people. Yeah. Gives us great examples to how to conduct ourselves. In other episodes, we've talked a fair bit about the relationships between characters in the novels and how George just continually points out how sacred relationships are and how we should how we can conduct them in order to keep them sacred. So I loved that you used that word sacred when talking about relationships a few minutes ago. Um, can I ask a question of you guys? Sure. I wonder who does and who doesn't enjoy reading. You're saying a lot of people, and obviously a lot of people have a block up against even just that level of sincerity embarrasses a lot of people not the subject matter of God embarrasses a lot of people, but that level of enthusiasm offends a lot of people too. And it's uncomfortable. Like to watch someone else put themselves so on the line is disgusting to a lot of people. And I wonder, I wonder about other people who read George MacDonald. If there's, uh, if there's like a common thread, I mean, frankly, I wonder if, so I wonder if there's almost a common thread of, be it abuse or neglect or having found themselves on the outside of some organization or or what it might be. I don't know if I imagine that, but really I'm a lot more people are open to it than a certain category. But I feel like he's so much a champion of this, not a champion only, but like a, I think of that Orson Scott card term, like the speaker for the dead. I feel like he's such a voice 
for people who've been so disenfranchised or so uninteresting to others that I wonder if people who love him have similar experiences like across the board because he's not for everyone. And that's part of what makes you feel so special reading him. Like, do you, do you know about this in your own lives or other people's lives? Like, do you have to have been through something to really get it? What do you think, James? You have a comment about that? It's a great question. It is a great question. I don't know that I have a formulated comment on that. I mean, it's certainly true that George McDonald is not for everyone. And it's not only because they aren't smart or they are not spiritual where they're, you know, not advanced enough in some way. There's also just, uh, Dell used the term kindredness earlier, right? Um, somehow, some people have a kindred spirit to us that others do not have. And presumably, those that don't feel like McDonald is a kindred spirit, presumably they have somebody else who is for them that speaks in a language that touches their heart and mind. Because I love McDonald so much, I wanted to share him with a lot of people in my life, and not really any of them have reacted to him the same way that I have. And it's a bit disappointing to me, but I also, you know, I also respect that because I see them moving along and growing in their life and through other means. I don't have a, I don't have a good direct answer to your question, though. Yeah. Yeah. What about you? As far as like a, a common, I wonder if there's just a common dejectedness from the system that fans of his share. Maybe that's a personal Maybe. question. I don't know. I, I mean, don't know. yeah, I don't know. I, I, I mean, I feel, um, huh, that would be interesting. Maybe we should try some polls on the George McDonald Society. Uh, yeah. Facebook yeah, anonymously answer a list. <laughs> you could have a list of questions see if, that they can to, to anonymously see if there's answer. Some, see if there's some common threads like that. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because, I mean, I mean there, there's, I, I know there's certain ways in which Dan and Dale are somewhat atypical in our culture, and I know I am. I, I mean, I, 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 well, I, a lot of people say I'm atypical in a lot of ways. I'm a weirdo, but... Uh, <laughs> One specific way is I completely gave up television in 1995. And, and so I can't have conversations with people about, you know, various shows on TV, sitcoms or whatever, because I've never seen them, haven't even heard of them often. So you were talking about dejectedness. Uh, maybe that's an okay word. Um, not, 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 not with the negative connotations of it, but uh, probably the fact that I had rejected a lot of popular culture before I even heard of George McDonald probably had something to do with him being able to speak to me. Yeah, that might be, that sounds like that would be one of the qualifiers. Things that, for whatever reason, your progress in the tract where things seem to be going and people seem to be going in general is stopped by an event or yeah yeah dejected was a stupid word for that i don't know what the the better word would be maybe an author could tell us but, <laughs> but yeah <laughs> no, it's just not. somehow on the outside of an in group uh gives you the freedom to be speaking things and he seems to be i guess that's what the wilderness is huh people in the wilderness 
where he says like when you're cast into i think he says you're running into the arms of jesus which is a lovely way of putting it it is and that's where you want to stay when you find the things that he says that are aha moments if that makes sense it, it does with reading him you got to stay there for a while stay in that spot and and hold on to that thing and and act on it accordingly because there's another one that will follow the growth process is ongoing the idea of aspiring means that there's there's no completion to that and that's the whole concept of eternity there will be no completion for us of knowing as we are now known it'll be an ongoing thing that is indescribable we we can't, we can't describe it and mcdonald i think was seeking that that that's how i that's how i read him and he he's looking at he looks at individuals there's a there's so many things to say about it i I would say that for me, it doesn't do any good to compare to anybody else what, how they look at something because they're where they are in time and they have permission to be. God is giving them permission to be. It's raining on the good and the evil. The sun is shining on the good and the evil. He's doing his goodness and expressing his love always. And not everybody is listening in the same way. You know, and so the thing for yeah, or can hear the same things. Yeah, sometimes the fault is listening. Sometimes the fault is hearing. That's for sure. There but, is fault again, right? Yeah, root cause might be a better way of putting it. Yeah, I mean, was Jesus judging when he said, "Let those with ears to hear listen," or just commenting on? He was a, a reality, noting that some people are able to. Hear that message and others aren't yeah yeah I've, as, I've a, about as a matter that. of fact that's an interesting thing to say i've thought about that a lot the idea of jesus saying that and at first i thought in a way it's like winking to say who has ears to hear let him hear when i was younger i heard it as exclusive and a little bit rude and as i got older i thought of it like winking at a group which is in a way to close half the group off from who you're looking at and in another way, it's encouraging that half that is still looking to, um, to know there's something here. And then later, I sort of thought of it a lot more in a much more childlike way, which is, do you have ears? <laughs> Good. Yes, you do. This is for you. <laughs> exactly. Like, well, you, you got ears. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But yeah. he also said to us when he spoke the parables, he didn't speak the parables for clarity. He spoke the parables to teach something that would speak to people's hearts so they would act. And the, the disciples didn't know what he meant either. And he said, he said to them, now I'm going to, I'm going to explain this to you now, but for the rest, it's not yet for them to understand. And that That's is a special feeling that like people crave a little bit of mystery and a little bit of handholding, a little bit of something to puzzle out, but and with someone you can trust. And that's something George McDonald does too, a lot. Uh, I just think that's one of my favorite things about him is I have to Google things and look things up. 
I'm mm-hmm. he he'll just drop something. What what did I just read? He dropped something about the east wind. What do you mean? Suddenly, but he has all kinds of things like that that he says that a lot of them are just his comparative intelligence and cultured knowledge compared to mine. But some of it has definitely been you. You know, he's intentionally dropping things to make you look it up because that makes you more involved. Like he knows them. I feel like there must be a brotherhood. There's like a level of knowledge at which they know how to lead you along and the right amount of participation that you're going to need to feel to fully experience what they're leading you to learn. Like in a way that it will come out of you. That's something he does really well. Planting those seeds so that you can come to it on your own in a really fulfilling way and high five him once you get there. Like, <laughs> he's so good at guiding you along. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's lots to learn and to continue on. Yeah. The more you read of him, if you keep reading him, I, I think that you'll just continue to find more. There are pieces of music that I've listened to over and over again, and I get more out, out of them the more I understand them, you know, yeah. and it's not by, uh, it's not by some kind of scholarly aspect of taking things apart to try to figure out how they're built or anything like that. It's, although that can be useful to understand aspects of things, but it's not necessary. The ongoing thing is as you read something, one time this hits you and one time this hits you because that's where you're at. That's what you need. You know, it's like right yeah. now, maybe I would like a raspberry sherbet ice cream. Not necessarily. I, think I would too. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? You know, yeah. there's sometimes that somebody says, would, well, and that's where the presumption comes in. If, if I say to somebody, hey, I got this great place to go and, and eat something and they go and they don't like the food. And I take that as a judgment on me. That's just wrong. They just don't like it. It's not about me. I would never presume on somebody how to, I wouldn't order somebody's steak for him or somebody's meal for him, you know? And so but McDonald's not for everybody. <clears throat> but you would know if he were a good giant or a bad giant based on whether he liked your food. <laughs> well, nice Lilith reference. Good that Jack. was a gimmicky joke, but. <laughs> That's good. If I can that reminds me of a quote if i can find it here quickly uh, from annals out of a quiet neighborhood it is one safeguard is to encourage one's friends to borrow one's books not to offer individual books which is much the same as offering advice no it's good there's a lot of different perspectives you know and uh it's nice to hear you talk about uh, that you can see that McDonald had a good perspective on women, even though he was a man. He was able to look at people objectively. The reason he could relate to people is because I think he saw those people when he walked, when he was out and around. You know, I, I think he was, he's taught for a long time at a women's college which was a new thing in England at that time. And he taught literature at a, at a women's college. And it was, it was all for women. 
that hadn't been available before before he started teaching before somebody opened that that college and promoted it and, and supported it so that that women had the opportunity to get this education and he was their teacher he taught their english literature to them so he had that sense of things and he knew about sickness he knew about death he knew firsthand about uh tough relationships with people yeah he describes things like you don't usually hear anything like that secondhand right it's, right. it's amazing how he, yeah he gets and it so our ongoing thing is learning those things you know yeah and teaching that class is very much in line with what he writes the whole concept of bringing the female element from where it's imprisoned, freeing material from where it's imprisoned by by reason, by reasoning with it at the pace it can receive it and in, the, in being willing to descend into a place where he could receive it, where they can receive it. And his depth in so many things just it takes a long time to keep reading it, to go back and read it again and to stop sometimes and chew on it for a while, especially the un unspoken sermons. But a lot of times yeah. there are things like that, that I, I stop and go back and stop and go back. And then I stop and I go to sleep and I read it again the next day. And sometimes I think, well, I still don't really have that, but I'm just going to go ahead with the story for now, you know, because there's always more. Yeah. I have this but, app that, uh, that voice aloud reads with a robot, like I mentioned, so I'm always running to my phone trying to screenshot the sentences that I know I'm going to have to work out later. <laughs> it sounded <laughs> profound, and I'm not sure I got it. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah. Do you read the books, too, from a book? I don't have a lot of physical books. I have a Lilith book, so fortunately, there's actually a really good reading of Lilith on YouTube by a guy. There's some by a woman, but I feel like that should be read by a guy. I feel yeah. like... The voice of a woman it would only distract from that book um and that's how i first heard lilith and then i got this book what else did i read wilford cumbermead that's a that great was one. an amazing find that was an amazing story so wilford Cum so i read that one physically fantasties i have at the back of the north wind but i it is not the time everyone says that's their favorite book but i it's just very, haven't done it it's yet. a very popular one it's not it's by no means my favorite, but a favorite. It's it's great. Well, Mercedes, we've talked a long time. It's been <laughs> wonderful hearing your perspective and your appreciation for George McDonald, getting to know you more. I appreciate um, how open you've been. That's something that's great about finding fellow friends in George McDonald is we have so much basis to relate to one another on that we can instantly feel quite comfortable with each other. I think Dan and Dale and I have found that and commented on that before. I think you've proven that you would be somebody interesting to talk to again in the future. So hopefully we get another chance sometime. And we wonder, do you have any favorite quote that you would like to share? Oh, man. I'm sure we all have this problem. <laughs> I really liked, you're free to think. <laughs> but um, there's so many. I'll stick with you're free to think or I really, you know, for some reason, one of those ones that comes back over and over is 
from some poem in Fantastes where it says, look, look not too long into your lady's eyes, lest you do her wrong. And in so many different ways that can apply. I thought that was one of the things that made me love him more. That's such a subtle gentility that we can do for our fellow man, not just even in your lady's eyes context. I thought that was really beautiful. Mm. Oh. Indeed. I've had a quote come to mind uh, through our discussion uh, based on some of the things you spoke about that I think fits fairly well with a, a lot of the theme of what you talked about. This is from What's Mine is Mine. And uh, I guess a little context for the quote is, um, for those that don't know, What's Mine is Mine. There's a couple brothers in that book who are, especially one of them, trying very hard to be the right sort of person. And there's a couple ladies in their town that, that they interact with a fair bit. And the young men are a little further along in their spiritual journey than the young women are. At any rate, there's this quote. A curious halo began to shimmer around the heads of the young men in the picture gallery of the girls' fancy. Not the less, however, did they regard them as enthusiasts unfitted to this world, incapable of self-protection, too good to live, in a word, impractical. Of the idiotic delusions of the children of this world, that of being practical is one of the most ludicrous. Uh, rock on. <laughs> exactly. This is what is so great about him. <laughs> I loved those brothers. Those brothers changed my life. The way they interacted with that family, that everything about the clans, talking about mm. what it means to be the leader of a clan. Like, man. Yeah. yeah. That story of the stag is just oh man, an amazing story. Wow. All right, well, thank you very much for your time, Mercedes. I hope you have a great evening. Yeah, thank you guys. I never thought I would be able to talk to anyone about George McDonald, so this feels very special. Great. Thanks, yeah, thank you. And I look forward to listening to the other podcasts. Well, thanks. Yep. Have a good night. Right. Goodbye. Blessings. Thanks. We want to thank everyone for joining us for this installment of Making Friends with George MacDonald. Please join us next time where we'll discuss all things GM. Talk to you then. Bye.